Hi everyone, I'm Josh. And I'm Jim. And this is the Dapper Meeple. This show is about our love of gaming, the games we play, and the gaming community around this passion. So pull up a chair, put on your Dapper Meeple hat, and join us at the table. Hey kids, remember, this is an adult podcast and may contain adult language. Also, Dapper Meeple hat not required. Today our show is going to be all about board games. After we discuss Wizards of the Coast plans for the summer, hashtag hot drow summer. And then we'll talk Call to Adventure, the hero building, storytelling, rune tossing card game from Brotherwise Games in the Games We Play section. And we'll wrap everything up with a few choices if you're new to gaming and trying to decide what to buy for your first taste of this hobby. All that and more here on the Dapper Meeple. All right, let's talk about Wizards of the Coast absolutely turning it up for the summer. If you're a D&D fan, especially if you're a fan of R.A. Salvatore and his novels, there has been a lot that dropped this week. There are a ton of new and exciting things coming out of Wizards of the Coast. Um, Some collaborations some people have hoped for probably for a while. Others may not be so keen on them. Definitely some exciting news, especially coming from the realm of Magic the Gathering. Uh, so for a, the past couple years, Wizards of the Coast has put out a D&D source book pertaining to a setting that comes from Magic the Gathering. The first was the Ravnica setting. Um, and then they also had Theros more recently. Right. Um, a while back, they had put some kind of articles out for some of the various planes from Magic. Uh, but nothing that really was source book material until the Ravnica book. Right. I think that was all uh, UA or Unearthed Arcana that was put out first, right. which is like playtest material for someone that may not be familiar with it. Uh, this time, though, they're going the other way uh, and they're introducing the Forgotten Realms into MTG, uh, making it part of the multiverse. So when you're playing Magic the Gathering, the whole kind of concept is you're a planeswalker. And you're summoning creatures and powers for the fight. Right? Am I close? Yeah. One of us has never played Magic, and I'm going to give you like two <laughs> seconds to guess which one of us. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's close enough for, I, for being able to talk about it. One of the things that you do in those, you play different types of cards. You can summon other Planeswalkers as allies, um, different things like that. Uh, always based around uh, each set has its own theme and plane that it kind of draws things from. Got it. Um, In the past, they used to be in three set blocks that would all be on the same plane. They've kind of mixed it up lately, uh, which has been nice. You get a whole lot more variety in your cards and things like that. Uh, One thing I've always loved about Magic is the art and the flavor of the cards. Yes. Um, They always go hand in hand. I know a lot of design goes into each set. Uh, which is just makes e- each interaction more fun as as you're playing. So now we're getting the Forgotten Realm. It's definitely a well-known setting um, within D&D. It's probably one of the most beloved, and it's, I, I got to think that there's probably more novels set in the Forgotten Realms than just about any other D&D setting out there. Maybe Dragonlance, but it's kind of fallen off, you know, in the last decade or so. Yeah, I would say without the official like representation in 5e, it definitely has not kept up with the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, players who have been playing for years and years 
um, recognize and probably remember that setting. Right. But a lot of new people to the hobby, which in the past, you know, five, ten years has been astronomical. They have no idea what those are. Uh, yeah, I bet that the majority of people would understand, like, new players that have started in the last couple of years. When I talk about the Sword Coast and Waterdeep and, you know, Icewind Dale, that's the area that they know. How many video games are set in the Sword Coast? Board games, even adventures that have come out. I'm excited for this Magic set. I actually kind of want to see this. This may be the thing that encourages me to play Magic. I, I've enjoyed, so there haven't been a lot of spoilers come out about it yet. Um, spoiler season for it officially starts June 29th. Uh, that's when they'll begin to pull in streamers and things like that to start debuting cards. Um, but a lot of the stuff they've come out with already, the artwork looks great. Uh, they've included a couple specific cards just kind of to pique everybody's interest. Uh, one of them was, um, of course, a Drist card, uh, which... Yeah. You know, everyone's favorite Drow Ranger that everyone tries to make in their D&D game. But it's actually, in consideration with other cards, is actually a very good card. So I'm glad they are not only giving it the lip service of, you know, what it is, but they're also making these cards, they're going to be viable in the Magic right. world. This summer, we've talked about it, and we've used the hashtag Hot Drow Summer because Drist is going to be a big part of the campaign that's going on this summer. Now, there is a D&D movie, a live-action movie, that has a pretty all-star cast so far. Um, the ones we know, uh, Chris Pine has been uh, has been cast, Hugh Grant, Sophia Lillis from It, Reggae Jean Page, who is pretty popular from Bridgerton, um, have all been cast in this movie. So I'm looking forward to it. But Wizards of the Coast did say that the the movie does not revolve around the story of Drist. So let's get that out first. Doesn't mean it's not going to be a good picture. And we have earned a good D&D movie. <laughs> all right. We were, we were good. We sat through that one in the movie theater. And then like the three more that came out on direct to disc. That one was, oh. I'm really hoping that in the direction and the way that movies have come along in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, a lot, especially remakes and things like that, that they've gone back. And some of them are better than others for sure, but the technology and everything surrounding movies now, I think really opens up the opportunity for a good D and D movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like we've seen it. We saw Lord of the Rings. I mean, visually was a stunning set of movies, the Hobbit, like you can do fantasy well now. And, People will come see it. You know, if you if you build it, they will come, I promise. So we're getting it now. Again, that one's uh, not centered around Driss. They did say so in their press release. A good D&D movie, like I said. We've earned it. Give it to us. So, so let's talk about all of the stuff that's coming out that does involve everyone's favorite Drow Ranger. Let me start off with Tyler Jacobson selling a painting of Drist and Guinevar. For $155,000. I think this goes back to... We had a conversation. It was a few months ago, I believe. Um, about how people who are in these hobbies. These what would be considered like nerd hobbies. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have money. And a lot of them enjoy spending it on nerdy things. You know, we talked about... Uh, especially that after the Critical Role campaign had such high success. $11 million they raised for their animated... Yeah, right. When, when people threw, threw money at them, 
I think it just really goes to show high quality things like this are something that our community is willing to put money towards. We grew up and now we got grown up money and we're willing to spend it on you. <laughs> so quit screwing around, wizards. And I think they're taking it, uh, you know, like they're taking a big swing at it this summer, um, getting it together. I think that was kind of the big first step because that paint that set a record for auctioning fantasy art, original fantasy art to hit that kind of number. Right. I think Wizards is really looking to capitalize on it because even during this past year with all the things that were going on, obviously you would expect in-store card sales, that sort of thing to decline. But as a lot of these shops transition to a more online presence, um, Wizards found their like play numbers, especially with their online client and their arena client, um, they were climbing consistently all throughout the year. So it still goes to show people are enjoying this product. And I think seeing the success that D&D has had in the past few years, um, looking to really combine those two and kind of piggyback off that, it's a good business decision. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, we are excited to see where that goes. So Driss Creator, R.A. Salvatore, if you haven't read his books, um, the Legend of Driss series, I think is what they're called now. There's 30 books in the series. They did an interview with him and where he got to talk about all the things that he was involved in. And one of the first things he talked about was Wizards of the Coast called him and asked him to write a drow lullaby. And he did. And you can go find it if you haven't heard it yet. I'm sure if you're in the nerd community, you've seen it pass by. But it's called Sleep Sound. And it is narrated by Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, And it is just a great, he does a great job. Like he was the voice of Smaug. And you can hear that same kind of deep, raspy voice when he's reading it. And it kind of gives you Drist's origin story um, in a quick, animated, you know, five-minute set. It's really good. If you haven't gone and seen that yet, go find that and watch it. Um, If you already know the story, you can follow along pretty well. If you don't, hopefully it encourages you to go pick up the books and uh, read and catch up. Because I think knowing some of that story may be good. With the next issue, because as Wizards of the Coast was talking about the live action movie that they're going to have, they also kind of brought up the fact that they have a live action series coming to. And that was in the interview that they did, correct, where they were um, basically saying that the movie was not going to be surrounded or surrounding the life of Drist. Uh, It wasn't a direct confirmation of this live action series coming, but it was definitely a nod towards it. Yeah, I got the quote here because the the live action DD show, uh, the writer on it is the same writer and uh, screenwriter for the John Wick series. They talk about the movie. They said in their press release, in addition to video games and novels, The Legend of Driss has action figures, Magic the Gathering cards, Funko Pop figurines, Halloween costumes, t-shirts, replica scimitars, and more. A live-action TV show is in development with E1 Entertainment, and a movie starring Chris Pine, Hugh Grant, is in production. Polygon reached out to them again for clarification and asked if Driss would be included in the film or the television series or both. The D&D movie is not focused on Driss, Wizards said in their email, but there is a TV show in development that might be. So they're kind of teasing us with it, and I don't know how I'm going to feel. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Um, you better give me something. 
at least a solid cameo, right? I will uh, come I mean, out to Seattle angry. <laughs> angry. So, absolutely. So that's the live action. And all this is taking place now, too. Salvatore has a new, one of the, the first novel in his next trilogy is coming out, and it's Starlight Enclave. And there's talk of it being set with the new drow. So they, Wizards of the Coast also came out, and they're kind of retconning what drow are. If you've been, if you've been part of this community, like I said, if you've read any of these, drow, dark elves were always the evil, you know, in the shadows kind of villain that you could count on to be horrible no matter what. Right, living underground, the only reason they came up was to raid, you know, cities or small villages or what, what have you. Uh, they were always perceived as being treacherous and no matter what the dealings were, um, all, all sorts of things like that, uh, which are really outlined in his novels, um, as you kind of see, especially starting from the origin story of Drist and proceeding from there, you really see those challenges that he faced and in overcoming those like over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was what we knew drow to be. And I think this comes from a lot of that we've talked about before, how Wizards of the Coast handles race and culture, and they were there were some problems with how they did it. Everybody in that race is evil. Well, uh, you know, if you think about how we interact as humans, you know, we do that to each other, and we've learned, I think, most of us, that that's not true. So I think this is part of Wizards going back and retconning it, because... Drow have always been the evil followers of Lolth, a chaotic goddess that enjoys, you know, the backstabbing and the secrecy and the things that go on in her cities. But now Wizards goes, yeah, yeah, that's that's Lolth Drow. But there are two others that you don't know about and maybe even more that they've hinted at. There are two different types of Drow that they're introducing that have nothing to do with Lolth. They are not inherently evil. It's a complete 180 on the Drow. I mean, I'm okay with. and. They're kind of selling this as it's always been there. The first one are uh, the Avendrow, which are also known as Starlight Elves, which that sounds not threatening at all. I, I think that it's kind of tough when you have something that is embedded as the kind of legacy of the Drow are. Right. Uh, to really change that and, and flip it on its head. Mm-hmm. But with the way that Wizards has lately kind of been pivoting when it comes to the various races, especially, you know, the traditional monstrous races. Right. Uh, I think this was kind of expected the, the next turn. Uh, and I think it's a good it's a good thing. Um, I mean, obviously, with Grist, for how many years now we've been exploring the fact that not all drow are evil. Right for various different reasons because if you read the stories of Driss there are other instances where these drow come out from that culture and city and end up not being as bad as what everybody expects them to be right the Avendrow are far far to the north so we're looking at probably under uh, the tundra above Icewind Dale and then there are the Loren drow or the green shadow elves far to the south in like in the jungles um, so in that kind of climate, we haven't got anything else on them, really. That's been it. Um, but you're right. You've seen, we have seen other drow in the, in Salvatore's last 
uh, trilogy or in the last couple of trilogies that he's written, there has been an explosion of drow activity on the surface, you know, that is canon. Um, drow pretty much run the city of Luskin now, which was the pirate city um, forever. They've kind of taken over and they've been led up there by Jarlaxle, who is the um, who's the leader of Brigand the Garth, which is a uh, mercenary group. Um, and he is my favorite character in the Salvatore novels. But he's by no means evil, self-serving, sure. But you had to be to survive anyway. I, I've always um, gotten the impression from him, uh, and it's probably through a few different instances, of uh, he did what he had to do to get like free from the city. Yeah. Um, in whatever way that whatever form that took, but now that he is free from that city, you see a lot of that um, empathy that he actually has come forth in a bunch of different instances. Yeah, um, he always plays the you know roguish figure that maintains certain appearances. The dandy, yeah. But there, underneath all that, and there are a few instances where it really explores um, that kind of deeper side that he has. Which, like we talked about previously, Drow, like, it was not something you expected from them. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's where you get, you know, things change. A lot of people, too, are arguing that they don't like the way that they're going with this, and they should have done something else, like, focus on, like, Alistri, which is a Drow goddess who kind of brings Drow into the light, out of, you know, out from, you know, Wolf's hold. I think this changes the Drow in a fundamental way. Because not all drow are born, regardless of where they come from, and are considered to be automatically evil. Which goes back again to talking about that culture part of how we deal with races. Right, and it, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad change. There, as we kind of hinted at and, and played around last week with talking about the, um, the combat wheelchair, there are always things that are going to make people upset. Yeah. Like, you're never going to please everybody, whether, you know, for good or bad. But I, I think this is something that, even outside of the things that Wizards needs to work on, I think it's always exciting to have new lore breathed into an old setting. Having having fresh life kind of given to, I mean, not really stale necessarily, but, you know, giving a new opportunity, a new location to explore, to manipulate, to play with as a dungeon master... I think that's I think that's great. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I like the source books of the um, the magic settings because both of them are some, two of my favorite settings that magic has ever been in. Ravnica but having and Theros. yeah, Ravnica and Theros, but having source books on them that really dig deep into you know the culture of the cities, the different like gods and stuff when it comes to Theros, what day to day life looks like. Just having that at your fingertips, being able to manipulate and use it is is awesome. And I think that's that's kind of the way that I like to approach new things like this, because whether or not you think that the drow should be that way or that they should add them, it doesn't change the fact that this is something new and exciting that you're able to bring to your table. Right. And I, you know, I if you don't want to put it in your game, fine. I would definitely use it. I mean, let's be honest, there's probably enough people over the decades who have played good drow to fill to fill the ranks here you know i mean it's it's a thing that you know so many people have played anyway 
the majority of parties, I think, are lean. The majority of parties in D&D lean towards good. They may go a little murder hobo once they get started, but I think that's how they initially start out. Um, I think it's a change. Like you said, I like it. I'm interested in reading more about it. The artwork that's already been released from those two both looks fantastic. Um, like their art team over at Wizards of the Coast is just top notch. Yeah, the, especially that and the freelance work they get because they do get a lot of those to fill their art yep. commissions. Um, all of that is always looks so good. Uh, the other thing we didn't talk about is the new Dark Alliance game. Oh, yes. Which is out this month, coming out in June. Um, so for those of you who remember the original Dark Alliance and Dark Alliance 2, uh, way back on the original Xbox and I think the PlayStation yes, 2, yeah. Two, um, yeah, those games were excellent. They're your very typical dungeon crawler, hack and slash Diablo knockoffs, you know, because uh, Diablo did it first. Um, but they were always sorted around, you know, Baldur's Gate and different stories coming out yeah. of there. Uh, this time, though, whereas before you were playing as random, random characters, <laughs> that random did, dwarf. Yeah. Random uh, archer. Right. Uh, so. Now it's going to actually be the companions of the hall, right? Right. So you you could all live out your your favorite fantasy as Drist. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> they know what we want. They're yeah. just messing with us now. <laughs> no, no need to roll up that five E character. <laughs> so your options so far it looks like uh, you get you have four options. Uh, it's Drist, obviously, uh, Catabri, who looks like she's probably an archer, uh, ranged attack, uh, Bruner Battlehammer. Which is going to be up close and personal because that's the way dwarves do things. And Wolfgar, who is the blonde barbarian adopted son of uh, Bruner. So the companions of the hall, they didn't get Regis in there. I'm a little granted Regis the first time around probably wasn't what I like to call a combat character. <laughs> but uh, still, I might have wanted to play Rumble Belly. I think it looks really good. I'm excited. I, I like those kind of games. They're great for, you know, just a, a mindless afternoon or evening uh, just to kind of hang out, play through it. I'm interested to see some of the lore that they bring in uh, to see how that kind of plays out in the storyline. Um, but yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be an excellent game. Uh, this summer is definitely gearing up uh, to have some really good releases coming out of Wizards. Hashtag hot drow summer. All right, we're done with everything else. Now we'll get to some board games. So maybe you found us and you've listened to a couple of our episodes and you're interested in playing some board games. Or maybe you've been part of a global pandemic and not allowed to leave your house for a year and have decided to take up a new hobby. There's lots of ways that we find ourselves looking into this hobby for the first time. We thought we would put together our choices for a few games if you're looking to start your own shelf. So uh, growing up, there are a lot of games that I played, uh, some of them including Scrabble, uh, Monopoly, Risk uh, being a, a personal favorite. Yeah. I remember some of those lasting very, very long nights um, for global domination, of course. Uh, but kind of switching gears to a modern era board game, which is really what we've, we are pushing and what we've talked about for a long time. So what was the first 
modern board game that you played? I think the first one that I really remember playing that really kind of hooked me on this was when we got to play Dice Throne at PAX. Yeah, so uh, that was at PAX Unplugged. And uh, when we got to go the last time they had it in 2019, hopefully this year we'll do a repeat. But that's that's, that's good. Uh, The first game I played was actually very traditional, played Catan. Uh, a roommate of mine in college, uh, his dad was real big into board games, uh, and he had gotten him the wooden box edition of Catan. This Ooh, thing fancy. weighed like 30 pounds. It was all like the whole box was was a custom wood design. All the pieces were huge. They were all like specially uh, wood burned and stuff like that. Beautiful set. But that's the first game I ever played. I was like, okay, this this isn't bad. I, I mean, it's okay. Uh, as I began to hang out with him more, we began to play other games. We played Seven Wonders, uh, DC deck building game, and then came Pandemic. And Pandemic was one of those games, as soon as I played it, the first time I played and the game beat me, I was like, all right, I can I can get behind this. Got it. Um, so we'll jump right in. We just picked out five games here that are really good for kind of an entry into this this board gaming arena. A lot of these games, uh, I actually own all of these, um, but a lot of these are the ones that I bring to groups of people who have never played before. Um, people who I would not call gamers per se, uh, just because one of some of the things that I wanted to highlight were. Simple rule sets, nice and easy to teach and to pick up and play. They highlight either one or two mechanics right. that are kind of prevalent in modern board games. Um, and then also they have an interesting theme behind them. It gives something for people really to latch on to. All right. So what do we got up first? All right. So the very first game I, I think is probably my go-to game when it comes to just presenting a a game to new people and that is ticket to ride Uh, a lot of people will say Catan is you know the first game everyone should play but i don't think Catan is a game for everybody yeah um it it can be kind of stale in its not design but kind of in its theming sure and nowadays it's tough to keep people engaged if there's not you know some sort of theming behind it Meanwhile, Ticket to Ride, there's a reason why it's at the top of all the charts that it is. It's a very simple game to teach. It's a very simple game to learn. It has a beautiful board, especially if you go with the original one. Artwork on it is exceptional. And it also is just a very simple mechanics. You draw cards, or you can play trains, or you can get new routes. It's not a lot of decisions outside of, you know, where to place your trains. But other than that, there's not a lot of hard critical thinking. Ticket to Ride it is very simply a game about building trains. At the beginning of the game, you get destination cards. You are allowed, you draw three of them. You are allowed to keep um, down to one of them. But you want to be able to get destinations that are kind of on the same route. Something you could build a a train consecutively to be able to kind of con- cover all of these destinations. And that's that's the gist of the game. You go and you can choose these train cards. You play sets of them in order to play down your trains on the matching colors of the tracks. Very simple, very straightforward. 
one thing I love about this game is it's widely accessible now. You can find it at Target. You can find it at Walmart. Pretty much everywhere you go, you can find a copy of Ticket to Ride. Now, one thing I do love is the new sets that they've come out with. They're almost mini versions of the game. You have uh, New York, London, and Amsterdam. They can be played in like 15 minutes tops. Oh, nice. Uh, they have a couple little twists in them that kind of add some extra things to the traditional game. Uh, but that's those are all good for kind of if you just are looking for a small filler, or maybe an opener while you're waiting on people to get there, that sort of thing. But all in all, Ticket to Ride is a wonderful beginner game. If you're looking for something that will definitely be a monopoly killer for you and and your family or friends. This is a good game to go for. Some of the things that I especially enjoy about it are simple. For instance, in monopoly, as you are playing, when you run out of money, you're out of the game. And as we all know, monopoly can last, you know, another hour past right. You getting knocked out of the game. In Ticket to Ride, the game continues until one person runs out of trains and then the game's over. So it's no, there's no downtime as far as sitting there while the rest of the people finish the game. And that's one thing I think a lot of modern board games have come and figured out that nobody likes to be sitting around when the game should be over. Oh, sure. And like you said, especially with a game like Monopoly where you run out of money and then you can either sit there and harass people, what I would normally do that are still in the game, but you're pretty much out of it. Um, where, like most modern games, there's an end point that we come to. There's no knockout um, where you either have to sit and just watch or go make another drink. Um, Ticket to Ride does that really well. I like how it, it does just come to an end and then we tally up points. Right. So uh, as far as a good overall... it. Just your baseline, if you have never touched a modern board game, Ticket to Ride is my suggestion as a good go-to. Next on the list of kind of beginner games that I would recommend uh, is a game called Azul. Uh, Now, Azul right now has uh, two, three versions of it um, that are out. I, I recommend going with the original one just for starting out it's got a very simple rule set the new ones do add a little bit of complexity to it um, and kind of change the rules and design a little bit Um, so if you want to kind of push it up a notch you can look at those Um, but just for your base game i would go with the original Uh, azul is a tile drafting game where you are grabbing these small little inch by inch tiles and using them to fill out a board that each individual player has you get points based on the type of tiles that you put in your board, um, as well as you lose points for if there are tiles that you can't use. Uh, it's very simple, but the one thing that it does is it teaches drafting very well. So each round, the tiles are put into a large bag, they're shaken up, and then they are put out on these little pads around the board. Um, And each player goes around and will draft tiles out of this central location until all the tiles have been drafted. It forces you to make decisions that may not be, you know, the best decision, but you might do it so that the player next to you can't get that ideal draft that they need. Got it. So they're... On the surface, it's a very basic design as far as strategy is concerned. But if you begin to dig into it and understand the mechanics, it can get deep fairly quickly. Because when you draft tiles, you have to take that entire pile. Right. So you actually, me and my wife played this one quite a bit. 
so it, our first few games were just trying, we focused on our own boards, but as we began to understand the game, we began looking at each other's boards and making those drafting decisions based on what that other person may be trying to take. Got it. So it's a very fun game. Very simple. Again, um, it's something a little bit different outside of your normal, just, you know, pieces on a board type game. Uh, the next one is, of course, near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is Pandemic. This game can be difficult if you've never touched a modern board game before. Yes. There are a pretty good bit of moving pieces involved. The one reason why I recommend this game is because it is cooperative. Right. In its base form, that's that's what it is. There are expansions that add kind of a trader mechanic in there. Um, they call it the bioterrorist. But in its base form, base pandemic, it is a cooperative game of you and your team of scientists trying to stop these diseases before they ravage the world. Also fitting for our current situation. Exactly. I love this game uh, because it's it's difficulty and just the when it was first came out, it was a huge hit because of the novelty of what it was. Um, and given its solid rule set as well as gameplay mechanics, um, it is all around an excellent game. Pandemic uh, basically is a game where you and up to four other players um, get a role that you have where you are trying to stop four diseases from ravaging the world. Uh, these diseases are represented on the map by four different colored cubes. Now, each of the players gets a special role card. Um, each of the roles is different. It does some sort of special ability. Like one role will give you an extra action. Another role will allow you to treat diseases faster. Another role, the scientist will allow you to um, find a cure easier than the other roles can. So it, there are a few mechanics that show up in this game that really make it an excellent choice for newer players. Uh, one of them is obviously, obviously cooperative. Um, that's something that's grown a lot lately. Yep. I'd say probably in the past four or five years, there've been a lot of really good cooperative games come out. And a lot of them have been on the back of pandemic, um, because of the success that it had. Another thing that they do is asymmetrical player powers. Now, this is a term, if you're new, you won't understand. All it means is that the roles that the players have, they have different abilities or powers that they can use. So everybody can do some similar actions, but some roles do it better than others. So that's another thing with Pandemic that is very good. Um, and then lastly, it's got a few other kind of mechanics of like drafting slightly and things along that nature um, that really just bring this game all together. Uh, the one thing that I enjoy about it is that it can be as hard or as easy as you want it to be. Yes. They have, it's a scaling difficulty within the game that allows you to kind of adjust that based on the kind of game you want to have. And at even just the medium level, this game can be pretty intense. Yeah. We've, uh, we've played it. Uh, I think I played once with you and I do remember that we did scale it back a little bit. Um, which is good because we had a couple of new players, you know, me and the other person we had at the table. Um, and at one point it was just, it was not looking good. It was just not looking good. Um, but we were able to kind of keep the game going. Uh, and I think we ended up pulling it off, but just, just barely, which seems to be 
if you win in pandemic, it seems that it's just barely. And I think that's what brings for me for co-op games. That's what makes them the most exciting. Not when you win by a mile, but when it comes down to those last few turns. Yeah. You know, where you're not sure if you're actually going to be able to pull it off. You have a plan in place and it just might work, but it just also might not. So some of my favorite memories of that game are those times where we were so close to winning and then one card made the difference. Yeah. Or we were so close to losing <laughs> and we're able to turn it around and make the difference. So that that game absolutely one of my favorites. I recommend it. Um it is one that I like to bring out um especially if I'm going to be there to play with the group. Mm-hmm. Uh it helps to have a player who knows what they're doing so they can kind of manipulate and run the game. But also you want to be careful about having an alpha gamer. You don't want them to tell the other players exactly what they're supposed to do or things like that. Allow them to make their own decisions, of course. Right. Um, but it does help to have someone a little more experienced in there. Uh, so let's turn the table around and let's talk about an absolute silly game that I I, I love. It's one of my favorites. This one is, and I'll tell everyone, this is our mother's favorite. Just to watch. Uh, my son has played it with us before and he's somewhat ridiculous. And he's really good at lying, and I'm really concerned that I learned this over a board game. Yeah, you, this is one of those you will definitely find out some things about your friends. Uh, this game is called Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, if you, if you, the name sounds familiar, you probably have heard of Robin Hood. Um, it centers around that kind of theming. You are trying to get goods and um, possibly contraband uh, smuggled into the city of Nottingham. And then the sheriff is, of course, trying to stop you. This game is, is very simple to play, very simple rule set. Um, the uh, You have your group of players, and one player will play as the sheriff for the round. The other players have cards of five cards in their hand, which they all have a turn to exchange or change out some of those cards with cards in the middle. They can either take cards that are face up, or they can take cards that are face down. Each of the players has a small bag that will fit the cards in. They decide how many of the cards they want to put in their bag. And the cards on them, they have different things. They have apples, cheese, chickens, bread, and then the contraband cards, which are like silk and crossbows and ale and those sorts of things. And so the players will choose how many of an item they want to put in their bag. So perhaps you would you have three chickens in your hand. You could take those three chickens, put them in the bag, and and close the bag. And then when you go to the next phase, you talk to the sheriff, and you say, Hi, sheriff, I have three chickens that I'm bringing to the market today. The sheriff then decides whether or not you are lying. They can choose to either search your bag or not. But if they do search your bag, and it's exactly what you said, then they have to pay you the money that is on the cards. On the other hand... If they search your bag and it is not what you say it is, then you have to pay them the money on the cards. So it creates this interesting dynamic with how much do you trust the people around the table and whether or not they're trying to smuggle crossbows into your fair city. <laughs> right. The pos- the sheriff position, it moves every round. Yep. Is that what it was? Uh, so everybody gets a chance to play the sheriff and everybody gets a chance to try to sneak goods or be a legitimate merchant uh, in Nottingham. Right. Uh, (laughs) My favorite about this is the dynamic that it creates at the table. Uh, 
that is one thing. It's both a blessing and a curse because if your table does not buy into this game, it's not going to be as much fun. Right. But if you have people who are willing to buy into that whole merchant mentality and, you know, perhaps they'll make up a funny voice or even just, you know, attempt to do whatever they're trying to do you know it's especially funny when the sheriff finds a crossbow and you said oh what's that cross that that's a cheese-shaped crossbow (laughs) you know it's those kind of things that really elevate this game to one of those that i absolutely adore It, it is very simple to learn they actually have an expansion out for it um which we picked up. It adds another player so you can play up to six. It also adds henchmen for the sheriff. So you don't just have one person being the sheriff. You have two kind of other people who are able to, it makes the rounds go faster when you have six people, um, which is excellent. Everything they've done with it has been really, really good. So this is one of those games that if you have a group of people, you are all good friends and you all are able to, like enjoy that kind of deceiving each other aspect of it. Um, This is a great game. Uh, One of the fun things you can, of course, if you are a merchant, you can bribe the sheriff not to look in your bag. uh, If you know that there's contraband inside of it, Uh, all all of these things, they just really put together an awesome package with this. Um, They, this game did just recently get a reprint. Uh, It changed over to um, Simon games. Uh, they oh, okay. made the new reprint on it. Uh, the art style is definitely different from the original. In, I Personally, I like the original better, but it did kind of brighten up a lot of things, make some things larger. So you should be able to find this game again everywhere. Target, Barnes Walmart, all of them have it. Yeah. Um, it is an excellent game, though, especially if you have a good group that you can play with. Or you throw a few drinks in beforehand. Exactly. Uh all right, so that brings us to our last game. Um, this one is um, an interesting game. I, I played this one quite a few times. Um, it this is also very dependent on your group, but it has uh, some cards in it that are kind of shared among a few different games that I think make it really interesting. So this game is Mysterium. In Mysterium, you have um, a group of people and then one additional player who plays as the ghost. Uh, you as the other group of people are trying to figure out how this ghost got murdered. You are all mediums who are communicating with the dead, but the only way that the ghost can communicate are through these full art cards that are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, if any of you have ever seen the art on these cards, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but they are drawn and done in such a way that it is pretty much impossible to give a clear definition of what you're trying to tell the person. Uh, in the game, there are three kind of stages. You In the first stage, you try and find um, the person who did the murder. You try and find the location where the murder was. And then lastly, the murder weapon. So all through these different cards. There are a set number of rounds to get to the end of the, the game. And at the beginning, each individual medium has their own set of person, place, and thing. So the way it's played, each round the ghost will pass cards face down, either one or more, to each different player, and then the, each player flips over their cards and a timer starts. 
and they can discuss among themselves what they think their card means, but they have to make a choice before the timer runs out. The ghost will then be able to tell them whether they're right or wrong, and if they're right, they move to the next category. If they're wrong, they have to get an additional card for the category they're in. So at the end of the game, you're able to um, total up the points of up until after you find your first person, place, or thing, and then the ghost randomly chooses one out of each of the chosen categories, and that is the person who murdered them, where they were murdered, and the thing. And every single medium is trying to guess that one thing at the end. So it makes it a very interesting game. Um, it really depends on how well you know the person who's the ghost. Uh, playing with some friends of ours, uh, there was one person who, whenever she was the ghost, it was always difficult because she would know exactly what she was trying to tell us and we would never have any idea. <laughs> uh, but it was still fun. It's a blast to play, especially at the end of the game where the ghost can explain some of their more questionable card choices. <laughs> Right. Uh, I remember uh, very specifically, there is a card in the game. It shows kind of like a dark alley with some steps and then like an iron gate. And one of the person in our group was given that card. And at the end of the game, they were like, I don't understand. Why did you give me this card? And she said, it reminded me of a doctor's office. And it was the doctor that was your person. So, again, it's one of those things that it depends on your group of people, but it's an absolute blast to play. Um, It is a very simple game, straightforward. Uh, It's one of these games, though, that uses these full art cards. There are a few others. Um, The next one that comes to mind is Dixit. Uh, I like the games like this because they allow you to really use your imagination of how you want to kind of express this and um, kind of how does this card relate to the item or person or place, whatever. Um, The other game that uses these that does it really well is Detective Club, uh, which we may talk about that one in possibly a future episode. Um, But these cards, I like the way they leave things open to interpretation. Yeah. Uh, It creates some very cool situations and scenarios and allows the person who's the ghost to um, try to be as helpful as they can, but it all depends on the person looking at the card because what do they see first? What sticks out to them and that sort of thing. Now these games, just to kind of make a quick side note, if you are ever getting one of these games and are kind of stuck on the rules, just reading through them, there are so many good YouTube channels out there that will teach you how to play. Oh yes. Yes. That's how, and I'll tell you most of my games, I, I struggle with reading rules. And then understanding them completely. Um, I think this has been a problem I've had for years. My entire time in the Navy, I had this problem with reading rules and following them well. But (laughs) being able to find a video where you get to see somebody else play it, uh, that sticks with me and it makes it a whole lot easier. A a lot of the games, too, now are coming with um, like QR codes in the rule book says, hey, you know, go here, watch this video. It'll show you how to play. Yep. Uh, I I think it's kind of been a really cool accessibility feature that's come out. There you go. Five good games to get started. Ticket to Ride, Azul, Pandemic, Sheriff of Nottingham, and Mysterium. Um, All of them teach you some different mechanics that are going to be repeated again in some of the heavier board games. Any of these games would be a great choice to start your collection. The circus is 
Next up, we're going to talk about finding your destiny with the hero-building board game, Call to Adventure. Designed by the founders of Brotherwise Games, Chris and Johnny O'Neill, and published by their company, Call to Adventure is a tableau-building game where you create a hero, tell their story, and plan their destiny by drawing cards, completing challenges, and rolling the runes. The goal of the game is to build a hero from their origin story through the trials and challenges that they may or may not overcome, and ultimately unlock their destiny. Through the game, you build either a hero or an anti-hero in an attempt to collect as many destiny points as you can along the way. At the start of the game, each player is dealt two origin cards, two motivation cards, and two destiny cards, as well as a single hero card. Players choose one each of the origin, motivation, and destiny cards and place their origin and motivation cards face up and their destiny card face down. Story cards are divided into three acts. The decks are shuffled, and a row of cards is dealt for each act. There is also a deck for hero and anti-hero cards that are shuffled and left on the table. Reveal the Act 1 story cards, and players take turns trying to acquire different types of story cards. If the card is a trait, and the player meets the prerequisites, they simply add it to their story by setting it behind their character card. If it is a challenge card, then it's time to take up the runes. Call to Adventure uses a unique rune rolling system. First, you get to use the three core runes for each challenge. They are either worth one point or none at all. If a challenge allows an ability such as strength, dexterity, or constitution, and you have cards already in your story with that ability, you may use those. They can be worth as many as two points or one. Finally, if you feel that you need a little more help, you may spend an experience token for each dark rune that you like to use. You can use no more than three of any type of rune when trying to complete a challenge. You cast your runes and add up the total amount of points. If the total is higher than the challenge, you win that card. If not, you get an experience token. Gameplay continues until a player has earned three story cards under their leftmost card. Then, the next row of story cards is revealed. Along the way, players may also play their hero or anti-hero cards, which remain next to their board and earn them triumph or tragedy points at the end of the game. Through the game, players can also earn corruption or virtue, which is tracked on their own board. Going too far in either direction will limit the actions the players can take or the cards that they are able to play. Gameplay continues until one player has three story cards under their destiny character card, at which point there is one more round played and we begin tallying up the points and telling your character story. Will you be a hero, a villain, or something in between? The player with the most destiny points overall is declared the winner. So one of the things I really like about this game is how it has a foot in both the board game side of things as well as the TTRPG side of things. Right. The uh, storytelling aspect of it is really unique um, to this game, I think, that I found because it really bridges that gap where you're creating your story. There's one other game that kind of does a more mechanical side of it. That's role player, which we may get into that game someday. Uh, but it's more of the stat part of like an RPG adventure. Right. Whereas this is pure storytelling, like at its core. Right. I believe there's two expansions for it now that are out. The yep. Name of the Wind expansion. And the Stormlight Archive. So from Patrick Rothfuss from Name of the Wind and then yep. uh, Brandon Sanderson. Yep. 
for the other, which are two very well-known fantasy authors, just shows that when they designed this game, they designed it from that storytelling standpoint. Depending on your group that you're playing with, uh, this game gets to be a lot of fun because you have to tell the story. A lot of times it's not even, by the time I get to the end of this, it's not really the score that matters. Uh, it's the way that the character's story has weaved throughout the different cards. Because you may have an idea in your head of the type of character you want to be, um, starting with like your background information, but by the time you get to that third act, the cards that you are able to actually get versus the ones that you know you wanted to get tend to throw like curveballs and things like that into your story. And so we talked about, this game is deceptively difficult, I think. When it comes to explaining it and it comes to teaching other people to play it, it looks like a simple game, but there are so many aspects that come into play when you're building the character and as you're going through the different, uh, like the different turns and the different acts. I, I think it's, it looks simple. It, I think it's more deceptively harder to explain because I've, I found I've had more, um, luck with teaching this game as kind of like doing a quick setup and kind of running through the first art kind of setup. Um, A lot of games you can explain and before you even, you know, move pieces on the board, you can explain how they work and then people can get a gist and go from there. Right. This is one of those games where you almost have to walk through it because too many, too many things can be thrown at people at the beginning that they don't have any basis to really, pull from right uh well let's talk a little bit about the setup like starting out with this game each player like we talked about is given two cards um and these are character cards and it's three different decks there is the origin deck the motivation deck and the destiny deck so each card they're shuffled and each player is given two of those uh and you get to choose which one you want so you get to choose your origin and it may be you know, noble or orphan, because that has to be in a fantasy setting as an option. <laughs> um, it could be an apprentice or something, but it basically you get to pick a card that says where you came from. Right. 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 The So the first that those are the act one cards. Um, those all include like the growing up of your character, where they came from. Right. Yeah, where like where they were born, what their family life may have been like, what their if they had a mentor, was it a good mentor, bad mentor, all sorts of different things like that. And they all affect your original character development. You immediately begin starting learning skills and different things like that that help you later on in the game. Sure. And like you said, that that is that origin card. You pick an origin card, a motivation card from the two that you're dealt and a destiny card. And those are kind of how you start your story. But for origin cards, Act 1 is going to be all about your origin. Exactly. Yeah. So so we'll get down to those because those are the story cards. You deal out Act 1 cards. I think it's four for a three-player game or five for a four-player game. Right. And you flip those over. And those can be things like traits, like adventurous. If your character has a constitution ability already or you want to spend an experience token you can just take that card if it's one of those that is considered a trait right there are also the challenge cards which could be anything from like um picking a fight or witnessing a robbery or a murder or something like that surviving the flames yes and you can choose uh, one of two options. Usually one option is easier. The other option normally gives better benefits, but you kind of want to have some sort of lean towards whatever those benefits are. 
Right. So when you pick a fight, you can either learn to fight and take like the noble way through where you need a constitution or, or a constitution ability would help you out. Or you can learn dirty fighting. Right. And either way, it will determine how much of a challenge that card is. But um, your choices with these cards, though, help to shape the way that you can interact in the future. Sure. Because once you get to Act 3, a lot of the cards are impossible to achieve unless you have kind of built on that path, at least in some sort of way. I really like the rune system. So the runes are simply flat plastic pieces um, that have markings on them. Uh, you start out with your core runes. Uh, everybody gets to use those for any challenge they attempt. And it's three runes that have a slash on one side and nothing on the other. The ability runes are the next kind. If you have cards in your story that you've already earned, they give you access to some of those abilities. So there's a couple different ways to go with this. You can earn cards and just maximize, like, well, I'm going to focus on my dexterity, my strength, my constitution, wisdom, intelligence, or charisma. Or you can mix and match so you have a couple different ones, which is kind of good because I know some of the later cards require you to have, you know, they tell you you can use dexterity or strength to beat a challenge, which means you get to add whatever those runes are that you already have in your story. And those are kind of big because they are worth either one point on the roll or two points on the roll. Right. So they make those the later challenges possible. Right. Uh, in the beginning, a lot of times it's only using the basic runes um, <laughs> or the dark runes um, if you're willing to go yes. down that path. So spending an experience point lets you use the dark runes. And they can benefit you, but they can also push your character towards like a dark side so to speak right right I, and i always picture this like in the old like in the old star wars games where when you did something you would get the warning pop up like knights of the old republic yep you know like you get well, dark side points do you want to talk to the merchant or you just want to slaughter him and take his stuff and you make the choice and it, the game would stop and you get a pop-up and be like you've earned a dark side point right. and that's kind of how i always picture this there is a tracker on each of your boards that tracks your uh either your descent into darkness or your rise into the light. And there are certain later on, there are certain cards that you can not have access to if you are one way or the other. Um, or sometimes if you are not fully devoted to the good or the bad, you can't access those cards. Right. Uh, so that is actually interesting. It, it opens up different lines of play um, depending on where you want to be. Sure. Sure. So once you've kind of collected your, you, you collect your pool of runes, um, whichever ones you have access to, you roll them just like you would roll dice, and the face-up side of the rune determines how many points you have. If you have rolled enough points to have a higher number than what the challenge rating of the card was, you get to take that card. And at that point, you've already determined, like you said, there's two paths on each challenge card, so you put it under your card so you can see the path that you chose. Yes, that brings up, I do like the card stacking mechanism. Yes. Um, it is a bear on digital platforms, but in real life, it's not bad at all. Um, you stack your cards and whichever way you went. So if you go light side, normally the 
the part sticks out above the top of your card or dark side sticks out below the card. But all that sticks out is a little banner that gives you the information you need. It tells you one, if you gained any points off of that card. And also if you gained any new abilities off of that card. So when you are going to roll your next challenge, you quickly look at your tableau and see, Oh, okay. So I have, you know, two charisma. I can get two more charisma runes to add to the pool that I'm rolling for this card. Right. It makes it really easy. Like I said, I like the rune mechanic. I think it's unique. Um, you're just throwing, like, it's all or nothing on each rune, uh, depending on which one you get, whether you're going to score or how many points you're going to score. Right. As somebody who enjoys rolling dice, just in general, it's a really satisfying oh, yeah. like feeling just to roll them. Yeah. So they, it's it's very, very well made. Um, so the game continues then. Um, act two is very similar to act one. Um, your motivation cards. So in this, you really begin to flesh out your character um, from more than just who they started as to who they become. So there's all sorts of things like going on adventures or quests or different things like that um, to really round out what type of character your person is going to be. Each round moves forward once somebody has three cards underneath their original character card, at which point the next cards will be revealed. Now, you cannot attempt to get the next cards until you have three under your, whether it be origin, motivation, or destiny. So you've got to get there first, but somebody's already moving ahead if they're into the next act. They can separate and get away from you. Exactly. Um, It gives you an opportunity, uh, whoever is the first one, to really have their pick Mm-hmm. of the new cards that come through. Right. Um, so there are a couple ways uh, you can uh, get rid of cards uh, through spending some of the experience points. You can do that once around, I believe. Right. You spend an experience point, get rid of a card, so it'll give you access to a new one. If you don't see any that either you like or that are really something you would are feasible for your character to accomplish. Right. And through the rounds on your turn, you also can play hero and anti-hero cards. It's two other decks... Um, You start out with one hero card, but as you go, you can earn more. Hero cards, for the most part, let you do heroic actions. They may help you through a challenge. They may let you help somebody else through a challenge. Uh, The anti-hero cards are just the opposite, where they may help you through a challenge, but you may take some corruption, or you can stop somebody else from taking a challenge. I know it's one of the... One right. of the mechanisms in there. You can also, there's also one that will make them re-roll their challenge as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and different things like that. Now, what's interesting about those goes back to the um, kind of corruption mechanic. If you are too far on the corruption path, you can't play the hero cards. And if you're too far on the hero path, you can't play the anti-hero cards. So a lot of times it helps to kind of balance right in the middle, just depending on, again, what kind of play style and character you're looking to make. Right. Don't really don't really choose a side. Hover right there a little bit. Really helps you out for a while. In the third act, the first person to get three cards underneath their destiny card signals that the game is over. At that point, everybody gets one more round, and then we start adding up points. Um, I really, this is when things really begin to get fun because now you've completely built your characters. You begin telling the story. And like you said earlier, adding up the destiny points is how you determine a victor. But it's a lot of fun when you go around the table, especially if you've got a group that knows each other. And we're going to tell you about the characters that we have. That was one of the fun things when we first learned about this game was actually at PAX in 2019 that we went to. 
because uh, we got to watch the gameplay of uh, Patrick Rothfuss um, play this live with another person, and it was moderated by one of the guys from Brotherwise Games. Mm-hmm. And they went through the the whole game, or I'm sorry, they they played part of it backstage, so it wouldn't be as long. And then they finished the game out on stage with us. Uh, so we got to see kind of their decisions, how the game played, all that kind of good stuff. But the best part, of course, was at the very end where they started telling their stories. Yes. Uh, and if you know Patrick Rothfuss, obviously great fantasy author, still waiting on that third book, but he'll still. he'll get there eventually. Um, but his story about In the Name of the Wind is really captured in the expansion to this game. Yeah. And they were playing it that night. So it was cool to see him interact with these story elements that he had already told. Uh, and his character he created, he ended up at the end of it alluding to that this was the backstory to one of the characters in the book That's, that we yep. didn't know anything about, really. So everyone who who knew and had read the books were completely you know, taking it aback when he said the name of, that his character was. You kind of get the ah moment. It was really good. <laughs> yeah, but needless to say, this game, like the stories that you can create in this game are what make this game exciting and interesting and really different. Definitely not something I would say for, I mean, the power gamer type or the competitive gamer. I, 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 I think it doesn't really feed into that much. It really is kind of a nod to the role players. And, you know, those of us who tell stories and that part of it. Right. This game is a lot of random luck. Yes. Uh, if if that's something that you have a problem with, then this is probably not the game for you. Uh, that being said, if you play RPGs and you're used to random luck deciding the factors of your life, then you can definitely get behind this game. Uh, just the storytelling aspect of it is so strong, you're able to really, I mean, mitigate around that because sure. that's part of the fun. I know for me in a standard RPG is you always have a plan, but a plan only lasts until you roll the dice, right. right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. So let's talk about a review value. Um, right now, looking around, you can find this game somewhere between 30 and 40 bucks is what it looks like. Right. Um, so that's pretty, that's pretty standard as far as board games go now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Normally, I expect on a new game to spend around $40 plus, um, just depending on the type of game that it is and how much stuff comes in it. That being said, there is quite a bit of replayability in this game uh, because the decks for the cards are pretty good size for each act. And normally you only get through less than half of a deck when you're playing in a game, even on like a four player game. Sure. So there's a lot of replayability and that helps in that story component. Right. I think there is one thing that does help with this is the expansions as well. Yes. Because you're able to drop them right in with the original cards. There are a couple of cards that it tells you to take out, but you're definitely adding more than you're taking out. So that creates and the expansions are not very expensive. I know the name of the wind one, I believe, is 20 bucks. Yep. I think the Stormlight Archive one is probably close to 40 because it's it, a larger expansion. Yeah, when I checked it earlier, it was running about 39 online. Right. But there is a bunch of replayability. Now, I could see after probably 10 plays or so, you begin to see and notice the same cards. And maybe some of you out there would try and have an optimal strategy, that type of thing. Uh, but I still think there's plenty of replayability, especially for that price point. So I think I would give it a solid eight on that. Yeah, agreed. Components. 
uh, the cards are really well done. I mean, I mean, always if you get a chance to sleeve your cards, um, do that. But the cards are uh, there's three different sizes of cards in this um, between the story cards, the character cards, and then the hero and anti-hero cards that come out. So there's a little bit, uh, you know, just have to check on that. You have to get some different size sleeves, but the cards are well done. And what I really liked about a lot of those two is the artwork that comes on them. Right. I like, I really like the artwork. I think it was done really well. I like the artwork too in the expansion because it really creates the scene. I mean, exactly as you would expect having read like those novels. Sure. Um, so those are those are done really well. I also like the runes. The all the runes are made. They're exceptional quality. They just look really good. They roll really good. Um, and I like that there is a good insert that comes standard in the game. I was gonna say the insert that comes in the standard box is really great, especially for keeping the runes together. You kind of start with that tray of runes when you're getting going. Um, like I said, you get the first three runes for challenges, and you may not have anything else coming out of that but it keeps everything separated really well it also keeps those experience tokens which are little red diamonds uh keeps those handy and easy to get to so the insert i mean i like a really good insert especially you know when you're putting it back together and it's easy to get everything back in the box so i think for the component value i would say that's probably a solid eight for me as well so it's not gameplay um like we said this game isn't designed for people that are really hardcore board game win or lose. It's definitely more of a, uh, you know, it's, it's a game you play when you have people around the table that, you know, and you want to hear that story. Um, I feel like this is a bridge for your RPG group. I could see that. Um, For those nights where, Either maybe you don't have a solid thing prepared or maybe there's enough people missing where you don't want to continue the campaign. Like this seems like one of those games where you can break out and maybe those players who aren't board gamers because that is that does exist. You know, so maybe they're not board gamers, but they can get behind something like this because it does fall really close to that realm. Sure. It gets to scratch a little bit of that RPG itch. So what I also like about it, too, is you can play this solo. So you can play it, you know, by yourself. You can also play it in a cooperative mode um, where you're building the character, you know, together. Um, So I like that as well. So that gives you a lot more options for gameplay. Um, I I think it's, especially if you understand that you're coming into this to build a story, I definitely think the gameplay is up there. I mean, eight or nine. If you're more of a I need to see a win type person, you're not going to enjoy it as much. Right. The only thing I would say that counts against it for me is kind of the initial complexity. Um, trying to explain and kind of lay all that out right. can be difficult. So I, I think for me, I'd probably sit close to a seven with it. Okay. Um, just because of where that falls. Because once you get the hang of it and once you understand how everything works, it's great. Like it's an excellent game. Uh, but I think that initial kind of crossing that understanding bridge can be a little difficult. Fair. Uh, replayability. You can tell a lot of stories out of the base box. I think that with replayability, you get you get a lot of stuff just in the base game. And depending on how how creative you are in your storytelling, yeah. um, you can also run with multiple stories off the same cards because it doesn't give you 
a cut and dry no character. No. It's really more a series of events throughout this character's life. And it's up to you as the person who created them to really embellish that story. Right, exactly. So those of you who write, you know, eight, nine page backstories for your D&D characters, this is right up your alley. The cards just give you the series of events and you get to build around that. Uh, replayability, an eight. Yeah, it, at least an eight. Uh, overall. Um, I think this is a solid game. Um, I think it's one of uh, a number of games that Brother Wise has come out with that are just really good, like really good game. Boss Monster is one that I know that's kind of becoming a classic. A lot of people know that one. Um, that came from Brother Wise. Right. I think this game, probably overall, I think I'd probably give it an eight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very high up on the games that I enjoy playing. Uh, but I don't know that I would quite put it in like a top 10 for me, possibly. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely one of those. I, I feel that it's unique. Yeah. And that's kind of what gives it that higher score for me. Because to me, I haven't come across a game that is like a board game that still has this really unique kind of RPG feel to it. Sure. And I think for some reason, this game seems to be left off of a lot of lists. And I think it is that uniqueness to it that it kind of keeps it from really being, you know, exceptional for everybody. And I think that's what it is for those of us that play it. Like I said, if you like telling that story, it's going to be a fun game for you. You're going to have a blast with it. Um, If that's not your kind of board game, then, you know, maybe not. Like you said, it is unique. Um, It's got a lot of replayability, especially when you drop in the name of the wind. Um, and the Stormlight Archive expansions. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it really gives you a lot. So um, overall, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, a good eight. It's a fun game if you get into it. And if you're playing it the way that it was intended, especially if you're playing with friends. Right. So, so there you go. Call to Adventure. If you're interested, go find a copy. Go make a hero. Go be a villain. Just have fun. So social media is always a big part of anything that we're doing now. And one of the social media platforms um, has really taken off is TikTok. People are able to log on there. They make videos that are up to three minutes long now um, about anything that they're interested in. And I mean, damn, there's a lot out there. But there is definitely a board game D&D TikTok side of things. There are a lot of good content creators um, that are making, you know, both funny little board game clips as well as um, even store owners that are able to advertise new product um, as well as just their excitement around different products and things like that. Um, those are some of the ones that I've enjoyed the most um, seeing kind of how what other game stores look like that we'll never be able to visit because they're so far away from us. So we decided we would. Uh, look at a couple of creators that we enjoy that we're following from our Dapper Meeple account. Um, we have not made any videos ourselves yet because our social media manager is a little behind, but it may be a thing <laughs> that happens one day. But we wanted to look at a couple of creators that we liked and that we thought you should check out if you have a login to the app. Let me start with, and if you go on, I think if you search these names, they'll pop up. Games DMAX Plays. Uh, games.dmax.plays. She is a 
board game enthusiast that does game review. She answers questions for people that are interested in things like, hey, I've if I need a game for two people, what would you suggest? And it looks like she has a ton of games that she's gone through already. She is well-versed in board games, and her collection is impressive. Oh. Uh, there are, are a few times where she shows kind of the shelves that she has, and then the locations throughout her house where she has board games, and they are everywhere, which is something that I can relate to. Okay. Um, I like her content. She has a lot of very interesting reviews and good ideas, and the way she's able to fit the amount of information she does into the small videos is excellent. Uh, so just everything about that I enjoy. Um, she's a very good resource, especially if you are new to board gaming or don't really know where to start or what to try. She probably has a good video of some decent suggestions for you to look at. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Real positive about it. Uh, she's, like I said, um, knows what she's talking about, knows her games, uh, really passionate about the hobby. Um, definitely go check her out. Give her more follows. I know that TikTok does have a creator fund, so the more people we can point in their direction, the better off. Um, the next one, Prodigy Ga Prodigy Games. Is that the guys down in Florida? Yep. So uh, they are a store down in Florida that really focuses around um, trading card games, TCGs. Uh, they do a lot of stuff with Pokemon, which is not one of my strong suits. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of the new product, especially with recently the lack of ability to get your hands on the new Pokemon cards, which I had no idea was a thing. But like places where limiting packs being sold to only one pack, um, as well as distributors just not having the cards right. to be able to get to these stores. So they kind of were able to do some coverage on that, as well as they do things like random pack openings. They do videos about their shop, which their store looks absolutely beautiful yes. uh, yeah. down there. They have a downstairs and an upstairs play area, um, of course, as well as, you know, whole retail space, whole nine yards. Um, but I enjoy a lot of their videos because they um, they not only go like they kind of give a humorous side to that running the store. Uh, I know there are some videos where uh, she will show her husband and he's sitting there with mountains of magic cards and he's trying to sort through them to see kind of if any of them are worth it. Um, that sort of thing, you know, it really brings a humanity to what your local game store goes through. Right. We advocate, you know, so much on this show for, you know, go to your local game store. Um, you can probably find what you're looking for cheaper somewhere else, but spend the extra five bucks and support people that are doing this, that are encouraging it to become more of a hobby for other people. So these guys are really good to look at. Um, another game store that we're going to talk about next is the Dyson Dragon. So this guy used to own or used to have a store open in California. Right. Um, and then through this past year, all the things that happened with the lockdowns and the various things like that, they weren't able to stay open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they did decide to relocate actually to Texas. Yes. Um, where he has currently reopened um, a new store and one thing that I've enjoyed kind of watching his content is seeing that process uh, because it's been exciting to see him go from, you know, having a store to, you know, basically shooting videos in his garage and yeah. then getting down to Texas and then the process of them finding a location, decorating the location, putting things in it, you know, deciding how they want to merchandise their store. 
has really been exciting. Um, as someone who comes from a retail background, like it's exciting to see some of the choices that they make um, and the reason they do things like and put things the way they do. And I enjoy one thing about him, especially is he is very down to earth. You can tell he like he doesn't have, you know, like a huge like formal degree or something like that. He's just down to earth guy who wanted to create a space where people could come and buy and play games. So the new store is located in Denison, Texas, is the town that they're located in. It's not a huge space. I think they did really well with what they had and the way they decorated. If you go look at the videos, like I said, you can see um, there's stuff all over the walls. You know, there's the retail stuff and then there's the decorative stuff that he's got that really brings that store to life. Right. So he is definitely one to check out. Um, Let's run down the list one more time real quick just to make it easy for everyone to find him. Sure. So uh, games dot dmax dmax dot plays was our first one the second one was prodigy games tcg and those are the guys down in florida they specialize in trading card games and the last one was dice and dragon now dice and dragon also has a website you can go to and you'll see he'll talk about it their big seller that they have is the dwarven ale mug it's a wooden mug with like a wrought iron handle um, they look really cool, and they also give you a set of metal dice for free when you order one. Um, they have been working really hard to keep the doors open and to reopen this. I know they put a lot of their own money into it, so go check them out on TikTok. Go check them out online. If you can you know, place an order with them, I'm sure they would greatly appreciate it. On this week's Kickstarter Roundup, it's board games all the time. We have three games here we want to talk about. Two of them have already been funded. The one game could use some help. First up, we have a game called Final Fusion. So this is the one that right now, they've got $11,000 pledged. Their goal is $79,000. There are only nine days left to go on this, so it definitely could use some help on it. This game appears to be uh, much like the game Smash Up. Uh, if any of you have heard of it, it's a game where you go in, you choose two factions, um, and you combine their decks of cards to create your one faction. Um, you play against another player in a heads-up type of battle where there are areas on the map that you're trying to control. Um, these areas are represented by different cards, um, and you use both the cards in your deck as well as this game comes with miniature pieces, which look really amazing. Yeah, I was just looking at the miniatures. To do an area control style game to win these bases. Each base you win gives you victory points. And then the person with the most victory points, once you reach a certain limit, is declared winner. Yeah, this one looks really good. I, like I said, I like being able to choose the two different factions. There's also no dice system in this whatsoever. They take out that random aspect of it. And looking through it, I mean, what you get with the base box looks really good. Uh, like I said, though, this is one that is quite a bit away from being funded. So if it makes it, it's got uh, nine days left at time of recording. Today's the 6th of June. So nine days left to see if this one's going to make it. I do like the artwork on these. It, it all very much flows together. Uh, whereas in Smash Up, it's kind of all over the place, which sure. that game's been out for a long time. But um, this, all the artwork seems to flow together. It looks really clean and crisp. There is some iconography on it that looks very clean and recognizable. Um, so it, it looks like a really fun game. Uh, I do hope to see where this one goes. 
I like the miniatures that come with it. I'm a sucker for really good quality miniatures. Um, it looks like they have some for each of their factions. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and they're kind of, I guess, I, I would kind of describe them as a little like cartoonish. Um, like there's a humanoid triceratops. And I'm not sure what that guy with four arms and the huge hammer is, but like I'm just going to call him the chin. That's all he looks like <laughs> his head is made of. Uh, but yeah, it, it, the miniatures look really good. They do look like they're not they're non painted. Uh, Final Fusion. All right, so the next one I want to look at is called Robot Quest Arena. Um, this is a deck building game. Uh, currently, it's sitting at. $293,000 pledged out of their $25,000 goal. Uh, so it looks like a lot of people like this. It's got about 3,500 backers. Still got 11 days to go on it, so there's still time if you want to hop in on it. Uh, the first thing that strikes me about this game is their art style. It's very, very what I would describe as like cutesy. Yeah. Yeah, this definitely has some like Japanese-type vibes to it. If I mean, I spent four years over there. And even the construction signs were cute. So, uh, and I kind of get that feel from this. We're looking at even, you know, the artwork and then the miniatures that come. Looks like they come painted already. Very much cute little robots that you send to fight each other. So, this this game actually comes from the makers of Star Realms. Which, if any of you have heard, Star Realms is a heads-up um, card drafting game. Uh, or deck building game, I'm sorry, uh, where it's a space theme. There are different factions in it. It's very popular, very competitive game. Um, they also made Hero Realms, which is the same type of game, um, but they added on being able to play cooperative against like quests and things like that. So a really well-known company. They've come out with some quality stuff. So I'm excited to see kind of where this one goes. Um, as far as gameplay, it looks like it is a um, kind of a robot arena type game. Is right kind of the way I would describe it, uh, where you have your own little robot. Each one has its own different abilities that it's able to do. And then through deck building and then using those cards, you make them fight each other, basically. Kind of like a really like Pokemon Digimon type feel where you have the trainers or the builders and your robot is actually what's doing the fighting in the arena. Right. So this one comes in just for a basic pledge, comes in at forty nine dollars. Um, that'll get you the base game, uh, as well as some Kickstarter exclusives. Now, if you go up to the next tier, which is $89, it gets you three additional robots. So the base game comes with four, and then to go up to the next tier, do you get an additional three? So almost doubles the amount of gameplay options that you have, um, which I think is really, really cool to do, um, just right off the gate instead of selling them separately as expansions. Sure, and it looks like it looks like that's how they're packaged uh, later on. So if you don't get those, um, you looks like you can pick them up later. This game looks really fun. It's from a good, solid uh, designer and company, so I think it's definitely one to keep an eye out if it piques your interest. And the last board game that we found on Kickstarter, it's already funded. It just hit its funding. Uh, it has 19 days left to go. Uh, it just hit the 12,000 mark, which was their goal. Uh, 268 backers on it. And it is Campfire, an anthology horror storytelling game. You sit around a campfire and each person gets a chance to add to the story. 
and it is a horror story kind of, you know, spooky stories in the dark kind of setup. Right. It really is trying to capture that um, kind of everyone around a campfire telling their scary story type um, vibe that you get a lot of time from camping trips. They're looking to recreate that in a game, which uh, the first thing that attracted me to it was the storytelling aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Um, As we just talked in Call to Adventure, um, storytelling in a board game is not something that's done really often. A lot of times board games are lacking in theme and story, if anything. This one looks to be... Um, kind of flipping that on its head where it's centered around that whole storytelling aspect. Right. Each person will take a chance as the narrator to add to the story. As you go around, you draw cards. It requires zero prep for any of the storytelling. Um, it looks like this could be a lot of fun. Um, turn down the lights, maybe have some candles. Um, and this looks like it could be a really good time, especially if you're into the horror genre. Um, it would definitely, it should definitely be a good choice for you. The uh, the cards and the coins and everything that comes with the game looks like it's done really well. Um, I'm all the stuff that I'm seeing uh, as far as the quality of the game looks really really good. So one of the things that they liken it to is, are you afraid of the dark? Uh, which brings back those 90s kids vibes, uh, <laughs> that and goosebumps. So um, something like that is very exciting. That kind of horror and um, thriller type of storytelling. Uh, that's always been something that I've enjoyed. I think it's this game has potential. Um, like I said, it did just fun. Uh, pledge levels on it, uh, just to get the digital edition, is only 20 bucks. So ease of access, you can get right in. To get an actual physical copy, which comes with a playmat and all the cards and all of that stuff, um, is going to cost you $40, which, again, not a bad price point. Um, again, the digital copy with the access we had to technology now is, I mean, 20 bucks. That's easy. Yeah. So... Uh, and then lastly, they have a couple of higher options. They have a special edition bundle, um, which includes some card upgrades and things like that. Uh, that's $100 for that um, that you can hop in on that one. So this definitely looks like an interesting game. I like that um, this kind of storytelling genre of board game. I'm glad to see it get funded. Um, hopefully it ends up getting more and more funding so they'll keep doing content like this. I like it. All right, and that should be enough to cure the last disease, and that means it's game over. So for the Dapper Meeple, I've been Jim. And I'm Josh. Good night. Thanks, everyone, for sticking around and listening to our show. If you enjoyed it, let me ask you a favor. Follow us and leave us a like wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us out. And if you have anything to say back to us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for the Dapper Meeple. On Twitter, our handle is at the Dapper Meeple, or email us at dappermeeplegaming at gmail.com. And as always, we'll save you a seat at the table.